Welcome to Career Alchemist Podcast. My name is Tiana Burek and I'm a career and business alignment coach. I help impact-driven professionals create careers tailor-made to their potential using the power of human design. In this podcast, you will hear interviews with entrepreneurs and professionals who have successfully created their non-linear careers and hear lessons learned along their journey through the lens of their human design. If you're ready to become the alchemist of your career, join us. Welcome to another episode of Career Alchemists. Today, I am excited to bring you the guest, Katya Stepanov. She is the co-founder and CEO at Inheritance Project. She is also an artist and actress, co-founder of Immersive XR Company, human design reader and DJ. And I'm so excited to bring Katya's story and for you to hear more about the inheritance and the impact on your personal and professional lives. Katya, welcome. Thank you so much. It's truly a joy to be here. I am excited for the conversation and everything that is going to unwind in this episode. So first of all, I usually start with my guests by sharing your story and your background and your inheritance. What have you been doing and what got you to start the Inheritance Project? Absolutely. It's a great question with many winding answers. What I'll do is start at the beginning. So I, Katya Stepanov, was actually born in Minsk, Belarus four days after the Soviet Union fell apart. And I was born with a different name. I was born Yekaterina Olegovna Stepanova. Every time I say it, I feel like I'm saying the title of some character out of a Tolstoy novel. And this origin story, this moment of being born into absolute chaos in what was then suddenly Belarus, you know, it was part of the Soviet Union for so many years, over 70 years, and suddenly it was Belarus, and my very young mother and father decided if they wanted to give me a chance at a normal life, they needed to get out of Belarus as, as soon as possible. And so we were very fortunate. My mother's Jewish. We immigrated to the United States as Jewish refugees. I was one year old. We immigrated to Teaneck, New Jersey. Very big culture shock between Minsk, Belarus and Teaneck, New Jersey. And we were welcomed by the Jewish community in the United States. And it should come as no surprise that now my work with inheritance and cultural and emotional inheritance and identity comes from my early childhood. I immigrated, I felt like an alien. My first form of ID said resident alien. I still have it because I think it's the most accurate form of ID that I ever got. And I felt like an alien when I was a kid. When I first came to New Jersey, I understood very quickly that the language and worldview and world inside my family was very different from the world that I was being raised in and, and everyone around us. And because I was the first born immigrant, I was very young, I learned English first and I started to assimilate and understand American culture immediately much faster than my parents. So I became a cultural translator for my parents at a very young age. And this early childhood of navigating chaotic immigrant reality in New Jersey. We didn't have, you know, community here. We didn't have very many family members and it was really hard. And my parents, they were just struggling to survive. So I was a very independent, very fast to grow up child. 
And I became a translator for my parents, not just when someone would call on the phone and be speaking in English, but in real life situations at the supermarket, you know, out at the bank, I started to understand that people communicate with so much more than just words and that they often don't say what they mean or mean what they say. And I had to study all the other signs of communication, body language, you know, when you don't, when it's not your first language, you're observing how someone is communicating on so many levels beyond just what they're saying. And I started to see that all the conflicts that my parents were getting into, that I was getting into, that that they were getting into with other people had to do with this invisible aspect of their worldview and their inherited culture. And that someone from former Soviet Union talking to someone who was raised in New Jersey, they don't see what they don't understand and, and see about each other. So this invisible backpack of all of our inherited worldview, stories, culture, beliefs, traumas, etc. Those are the things that we don't see, but those are the things that get in our way and stand between us in terms of connecting and understanding each other. So the dream of Inheritance Project and, and this company that I've created to help people make the invisible visible for themselves and each other really was this lifelong journey for me. And I'll share a little more about my design since this is also about human design. I am a 5-1 mental projector. So I don't have any defined centers below my throat. I'm almost a reflector, but not. <laughs> I have one channel, 2343 Freak to Genius. So it also makes sense that I was an observer of all the conditioning, which when I say inheritance, I'm talking about conditioning in human design vocabulary. What are all of the ways of being and ways of seeing the world and beliefs and stories that we absorb into ourselves from our environment and our environment contains our parents or our caretakers maybe wasn't parents whoever took care of you in the early stages of your life your community and the friends that you made and the five people that you spent the most time with when you were growing up and then of course everything you consumed because we absorb by consuming we consume media we consume and understand even the unspoken truths and unspoken rules of society that all of that is part of our inheritance um, and so I spent my whole life living in full conditioning <laughs> and recreating the stories and patterns that I inherited until I realized that those stories, patterns, and all of my behaviors were really keeping me from being who I was meant to be. And that I was trying to perform an identity that I thought was what I was supposed to be, but not actually who I was or who I was meant to be. And I realized that I wasn't alone and that a lot of people struggle with conditioning and don't know what to do about it. And so I started on this path of understanding myself and my conditioning and my inherited trauma and my inherited worldview and studying the former Soviet Union and understanding where these things that I felt like were standing in my way, but they were not standing in the way of other certain other people that I saw around me. I was like, what do I do about this? How do I shift this? So I'll share a little about my professional journey, which is that first I became an actor, which makes sense when you think about storytelling and that you know, when you're a child, you're understanding the world through story. All people are understanding the world through the stories that they are told or tell themselves or see. And so I understood that 
storytelling was this tool of connection and understanding. And because I felt like I didn't belong anywhere, I found that I belonged in storytelling. I belonged in performance as an actor, as a dancer. This was a, a creative medium where I could explore all these different identities within myself. And that was normal. You know, it wasn't, you don't, you don't have to pick one thing that you are when you're an actor, you can be many things. You can reflect many different types of people um, and, and embody them. And so I dreamed in my early childhood of becoming a famous actor, partially because I wanted to escape my really intense childhood <laughs> and really intense reality. And also because I understood that stories have the power to change the world. And I knew from a very young age that I was here to change the world, that I could see that everyone had inherited these ways of being, ways of relating, ways of working, ways of doing things that were hurting them and harming each other. And it felt to me like nobody was talking about this and nobody was doing anything about it. And we were all just, oh, that's the way things are, right? Uh, and I just refused to accept that. I could see a different way of doing things. And I thought, how do we get to that place? And so that became my pursuit. So I became an actor, then I became a yoga instructor. That is because that was the first uh, practice that helped me connect to my real self and my body and understand what I had absorbed in terms of physical conditioning in my body. I started reading about trauma. I read The Body Keeps the Score, all the books that you could possibly read about inherited trauma. And I started understanding that we really needed facilitated spaces where we could actually do this work. So I became a team building instructor. I had a whole career as an immersive game designer. And I started meeting companies and teams where I realized that these experiential learning tools, learning through the body, learning through games, learning through play, that's actually how people learn things and retain them. And I started to connect the dots that actually maybe there's a way to use experiential learning to help people understand their inherited conditioning and then share their stories with each other. So the storytelling aspect and then learn all the nervous system tools they need to repattern themselves into better alignment with themselves. So that's all the yoga and breath work and mindfulness work. And I thought, what if we put it all together into a community container where people who want to break the cycle and decondition themselves and recognize what they inherited and create their own legacy consciously could do this work together so that I didn't feel, you know, I, I needed this when I was growing up and I didn't have it. So I thought, how come it doesn't exist? Let's make it. So that was really the origin point of Inheritance Project. I know that's many stories in one, but I think it should come as no surprise to you that someone who had all open centers except for their Ajna and throat center went into a career in deconditioning. <laughs> so wow. Wow. That's wow. The, those are the dots <laughs> that I want to connect in my introduction of, of myself and who I am. This is a true reflection of someone living the, their design and creating the business, creating their vocation out of who they are. And you're a true embodiment of a mental projector, of a visionary, a leader of the future who is here to see what is not working, what is missing, and to create the space for people to get together and heal this and decondition. So when you got an idea to start inheritance project what was the first obstacle you have faced what was <laughs> great question well here's the thing about being a mental projector and to all my projectors listening to this podcast we are full of ideas right i have a million million dollar ideas a day but i don't have the energy to actually execute those ideas in a in a consistent day-to-day manner. 
So one of the biggest obstacles that I had to overcome and one of the biggest pieces of conditioning that I had to overcome is this myth of the individual solo successful solopreneur. I'm not saying you can't be a successful solopreneur as a projector. You totally can. There are many strategies that you can employ. But I didn't recognize that the reason that all of my ideas and initiatives weren't really taking off is because I was trying to do it all by myself. And I had a wound to heal around partnership, around people who I thought would recognize and see me and invite me in. And then I felt taken advantage of, or I ended up not actually being able to play the role that I needed to play in many past collaborations of various kinds, right? So I understood when I had the vision for Inheritance Project that if I wanted this company to become a global company that helps people across the world understand each other better, across inherited culture, across inherited worldview, that this would require a huge team. And I would need to start finding my core partners in this work right away. So the biggest obstacle was finding the right partners for me, people who understood my vision and also understood my design and understood what I am good at and what where my limitations are and people who I could see were also on the same path, already wanting the same mission to come true in the world. Like who are my allies in this work? And overcoming the fear of sharing, you know, overcoming the fear of saying, let's do this together because it is a contract that you create. My co-founders, we're married, right? <laughs> it's a marriage. You're deciding to commit to each other and to be in relationship, but actually it is also, it's the greatest obstacle and it's the greatest gift. It's, it's the, the relationship through which all of the content that we create, all the programs that we've created, it comes from the work that we do inside of our team on communication, how to decondition ourselves, right? Like it's the inner work is the outer work. So I am so grateful. I have two incredible co-founders, Mallory Kambamal, Ariel Figueroa. They are both manifesting generators. So that should give you a clue on how the three of us work together, right? And they both had similar vision and desire to create transformative experiences for people to break out of their, their conditioning and, and live their true, authentic, conscious legacy. So we come from many different worlds, but we share the same vision. And that was, it's the, the biggest obstacle and the biggest gift, you know, how to be in partnership and work through all the challenges that you have and that you will have with any partner. And what I'll say is that the, the silver lining and the hopeful thing is that our conditioning is learned in relationship. So we need to be in relationship to decondition ourselves. And that is one of those painful truths. You can't decondition by yourself. You can only get so far, you know, you can think that you've deconditioned a pattern, but okay, and then go see your parents and, and report back to me how it went, you know? So <laughs> we, we have to do this work in relationship. And this is why in human design, I really believe we need each other. Like we are not meant to be just isolated, floating people, you know, trying to do everything by ourselves. We're interdependent, we're interrelated. So we have to do it through relationships. 
And that's actually what our upcoming course is all about. We're teaching a course in the fall, seven skills for challenging conversations through the lens of inheritance. So what have you inherited in terms of conditioning around how you relate to conflict, how you relate to speaking up in an uncomfortable situation? What are your obstacles? Like what are the beliefs you inherited about disagreement that keep you from being in healthy partnership and what can you do about it? And what are the tools that you can use to to re to decondition and relearn, right? Unlearn and learn. Unlearn mm -hmm. the things that are not working for you. Recognize what they are with compassion for where they came from. Forgive yourself for your conditioning. And what can you do about it to shift it into the kind of relationship in life that you actually want to have with your partner, with your boss? It doesn't matter who it is. I love all the nuggets of wisdom you're sharing. I want you to uh, reflect a little bit to, you're speaking about inheritance, but I would love you to introduce the beginning stage and the awareness when someone gets introduced to their inheritance, the five C's as you have uh, created. So would you tell us yes. a little bit more about what they stand Absolutely. for? Absolutely. I keep saying unpack your inheritance as if that's like a, an understandable process, <laughs> but it is an innovative new blueprint, right? That we have created. So when you are ready to unpack your inheritance, the first thing that we invite everyone to do is use a specific framework for understanding their inheritance and their identity. And I do wanna take a pause and explain the difference, right? Between the two. And I'll explain it with this clay metaphor. So imagine your inheritance is like the ball of clay that you are given when you are born. There are certain things about it that you cannot change. The color of the clay, where the clay came from, and some of the early marks that were put into the clay, right? In the first earliest years of childhood. That's your inheritance. And you're inheriting all the time as well and adding to this maybe on an unconscious level. And then you have your identity, which is how you mold the clay, how you shape the clay and things that have shaped the clay over the course of your lifetime, right? So for example, I inherited, I'm, I'm from the former Soviet Union, but now I identify as someone who lives in Brooklyn. This is something that I consciously chose. So identity is a more conscious choice. We choose what we identify with. Inheritance is a more unconscious element that we need to understand and see how that integrates into our identity. So in order to start detangling this very complex topic of identity, we use a framework that is given to us by a brilliant sociologist named Kwame Appiah. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I want to read a book about this, he wrote a book called The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. And he breaks identity up into these five C's. Country. So what are the countries? That, that shape your inheritance and identity, looking at it from both sides, right? I might have been born in Belarus, but now I choose to live in Brooklyn and in the United States. So I have my inherited culture. And if I wanted to expand that, if I want to look beyond the Soviet Union, there's many other countries that have shaped my inheritance if I actually you know, follow that thread. So how do the countries that I've lived in or that my ancestors came from shape who I am today? The next C is culture. So what are all the cultures that I both inherited and that I choose and I identify with? And culture is like an onion. There's so many layers to it. There's a culture at home. 
There's culture at school. There's the culture in your workplace. There's the culture of your hobbies. I was a professional Latin ballroom dancer. I was raised in Latin ballroom dance culture from the age of three to 13. And it definitely shaped my worldview about my body, about what it means to be in community, right? About so many things. So that there are different cultures, you know, maybe some of you are playing sports. There's their sports culture. There's also culture on a larger scale, right? Like the mainstream culture of a certain generation. So 90s culture shaped my childhood, right? Madonna, heroin chic, be as thin as possible. These are cultural things that we inherited as and that I inherited as a woman growing up in New Jersey, right? There's New Jersey culture. So culture is an expansive expansive sea that you can probably spend the rest of your life just investigating this one sea in your in your identity and inheritance. So we have country and culture, then we have class. So what is your relationship to class? And class is very contextual and specific to location and region and culture, right? So what you start to see when you look at the seas is that they're not separate categories. They're all like a big Venn diagram. All of them are intersecting with each other. Can't talk about culture without talking about class. Can't talk about class without talking about country. You know, they're all connected, but by separating them, we can start to understand how each of them have shaped us. So, you know, for myself, I was brought, you know, into America as a as an immigrant, we didn't have any money. We had like $800 or something when my parents first got here. So we started in immigrant poverty, right? And then I witnessed my parents really live the American dream and went through so many different classes in my lifetime. So I think I have a very unique perspective on class. This is why I am a chameleon and I can kind of fit in, you know, in the Hamptons, but I can also just go walk in Sheepshead Bay and not feel strange. So it's the class is also something that in America is you can move through different classes much easier than you might in England, right? Where class has to do with family and not with how much money you make. It has to do with ancestral, you know, titles and things like that. There could be someone who is a higher class in England who is more poor than someone wealthy from a lower class in England. So classes really specific to the country that you're in. And it's interesting for you to unpack what's your relationship with class? What class were you raised in? What class do you identify with now? How does class shape the way that you move through the world, etc. Next, we have color, color of your skin, and addressing, acknowledging, and identifying how that has shaped your identity and inheritance. And even though we were really poor, you know, underprivileged immigrants that came from the former Soviet Union, a communist country, not a lot of privilege there. We're still, we're white. I'm a white, blonde, blue-eyed woman. So I assimilated into American culture and can hold a certain status based on the conditioning of everyone in this society. I have that privilege. I have to acknowledge that I do, that my life and my path, my journey might have looked very different if the color of my skin was different. So I can at least identify that and acknowledge it and understand how it shapes me and the way that I see the world and the way that I am experienced by other people and perceived by other people. And then finally, we have creed. So creed is your religious upbringing or your spiritual upbringing. What are the spiritual beliefs that you were raised with? 
for myself, I came from a family where there was no God, right? Soviet Union, there's no God, there's no spirituality. Religion is opium for the masses. This is the narrative that my parents inherited. So even though we were Jewish by heritage, we were not Jewish by religion. And we tried when we came to the United States, but it was very hard to fit in with Jewish Americans when we were from the former Soviet Union. Um, and so I have had my own journey in my lifetime. So I identify as a spiritual person now, but that was by choice, by my own research. So this is one of the areas in my inheritance that I really have had an active role in, in shaping in my, in my current present identity. So creed can also be not just religion. Creed is like in a, in a post-Soviet household, you take your shoes off at the door before you come into someone's house. That's creed. You you respect your elders in a different way than the people that are your own age. That's also creed. So creed is like the beliefs around how you're meant to treat yourself and other people, which can also be a, a Venn diagram of topics. So those are the five C's, country, color, culture, class, and creed. And that's the starting point. So we do this work in community where everyone is choosing different C's to really dive into, to, to explore through somatic at practice through stream of consciousness writing and then we share our reflections with each other and we learn so much by reflecting back to each other our own experiences and we see that no matter where you come from you might have completely unique sees and find yourself connecting on the same themes and the same feelings and the same topics so there's this paradox of identity we're all different and we're all the same and both are true at the same time <laughs> So we explore the nuanced place between where we can find what our unique inheritances and also understand the way that we're not alone in deconditioning ourselves from some of these really harmful narratives that we collectively inherited. Amazing. Thank you so much for this explanation. There's something that was interesting to me when you said when you started with inheritance, it's like the clay, like what we were given, we don't have a choice to change. Then we have the identity. It's I choose to identify with what I want. And then there's like a third layer, I would add, it's the image. It's I choose how I want to be seen by other people. So when you the work you do, you work largely with organizations and with teams. And then when you have people in the workplace, they usually have built this different professional persona mm -hmm. from what they personally <laughs> are. So I like to differentiate between the personal professional brand. So you come off, you're in this environment where there are these very different individuals who have created this image and perception of their professional persona. You come in with your team with the inheritance project and you start unpacking. Oh, yeah. What happens? <laughs> oh, it is the best. It's my favorite thing because, because one of the most strongest narratives we've inherited is that we have to keep personal, personal and professional, professional. But what research and data is showing us is teams collaborate more effectively, more productively. You have way higher efficacy, collaboration, connection, healthy culture when people feel psychologically safe in a group to be themselves, to be their full selves. And actually, when you fracture yourself into this professional persona, you're leaving behind 
parts of yourself that might actually be the key to solving the biggest solutions in your company. And the reason people have left those parts out in the past is because there there's a lot of stories that people inherit about each other based on their unique worldview, right? Based on their inheritance. So the reason why it's successful when we work with companies is because we start with the individual. Each person starts unpacking their own inheritance to the degree that they feel comfortable to. We're not, you know, we don't force anyone to relive any traumatic experience. If they choose to go into that topic, they choose that for themselves, right? So it doesn't matter what you choose. You're going to start understanding certain layers of yourself that maybe you weren't even aware of before. And when you're sharing them with your team, you're building trust. So what happens is I see in the first workshop, people who've sat next to each other at work for 20 years and didn't know that they both like love this random unique hobby, or they both lost a parent this year, or they both, you know, there's all these invisible life experiences that we don't share and actually we're all losing when we do that because we're not able to build deeper understanding see where the connections are see where our like super hidden talents are or where our triggers are and when we are able to actually have enough psychological safety which takes time and commitment to establish on a team but when you get to that point that's when you can understand oh okay maybe my manager reacts to this particular behavior on my team in this way because of their inheritance. And I'm able to actually empathize with them and understand that they're doing this for this particular reason. It has nothing to do with me. I can stop taking it personally. I can understand how my needs are different from their needs and we can actually find common ground between. So we, it's like we can't find the third way and the more connected, collaborative, better solution if both people aren't authentic about what they need. And when we make up these avatar, work avatars of ourself, it's like we leave all of our most interesting, most connective, the things that make us human, the things that we relate about. It's like, those are all the things that we're leaving out. And then we're surprised when we're running into conflict, when we have tension, when we're not feeling good on this team, when we're like, I hate my job, I hate my boss, this is what everybody complains to me about. And I'm like, that's because you're fracturing yourself and you don't have an environment where you can actually feel safe enough to come to work one day and say, hey, you know, I struggle with complex PTSD and I had a really hard day yesterday and my level is at like a four. Like, can we adjust what we're doing today so that I can be my best self? You know, these kinds of conversations are what make really resilient, strong teams where people don't quit overnight because they're miserable. So it ultimately pays off. It's like people think, oh, I'm so scared. I'm scared to, I'm scared to reveal any of these things that actually make me human and make me connected to everyone around me. And as soon as you actually start talking about it in a, in a container that is well-held, well-facilitated. So this is the other reason we went into creating the inheritance project. You, you do need a facilitator. You need a generous authority to do this work. You can't accomplish what I'm talking about by going out to the bar with your coworkers. You know, it does need to happen in an environment where there are agreements, where there are tools in place that are allowing it to be an inclusive experience for everyone, no matter where they come from, what their seniority level is, etc. So we do put parameters in place. 
that make the conditions where people can actually open up without fear of being fired, without fear that they're going to say the wrong thing, right? We do get a lot of buy-in from the leaders that do this work with us. So the companies we work with, they understand that a team that trusts each other, that has this level of psychological safety, are going to be more innovative they're going to move faster. They're going to collaborate better than a team where everyone's performing this like fake happy version of themselves and no one's telling each other the truth. And then they're all passive aggressive in back channels talking about each other and every project is delayed. Couldn't agree more to every single thing that you have said, especially the fact that the ability to strip all these layers of external conditioning allows you to become human, to show your naked human nature. And this is what creates the synergy between teams. And this is what brings us to the future of the work when we create these humanity-oriented teams. But as you said, in order to do that, you need to have leaders who recognize this and who recognize that this work is necessary in order to create the innovative teams. Not a lot of companies are open to that. And, you know, like something that I've seen a lot of people are in personal development, they're working on themselves doing this on their own outside of their workplaces. And when they try to bring their authentic self into the workplace, they're not recognized for like in their authentic way. So what are those leaders of the future what are those companies like can you tell us and like if you have a rough estimate of what percentage of companies nowadays are at that level it's a good question what i'll say is it's harder to imagine that a whole company believes in this but companies are made up of people and what we find about the people who find us and who we find and who are ready to do this work is it's the innovator evolutionary cycle breaker brave leader inside of that workplace that says i'm going to advocate for this and then they need tools to actually advocate for this kind of culture change right and we do kind of limit who we work with to leaders who already understand the value of inclusivity, who already understand the value. We do have data, you know, I can tell you $365 billion is spent on navigating conflict at work instead of working every year. That's over $300 billion. So if you need an uh, an ROI or a reason to invest in a training that's going to reduce conflict on your team, I think that's enough. You know, someone who doesn't understand the value of that is just not a right fit for for our work and and would not be invested enough in the kind of culture change required to actually move the needle on that, right? So we do have data and, you know, we do speak a different language when we're talking to certain leaders and and pitching our work. But what I'll say is that there's often there often is a head of people or a leader or somebody on a team who understands the value of this. And what it takes is knowing how to find common ground and advocate for yourself inside of a team. And this is what the seven skills for challenging conversations teaches you. It's about how do I communicate my needs in a way that I'll actually be heard. And in a way where instead of us being more, you know, polarized at the end of the conversation, we find common ground and we find compromise and we find something that might work. So I can say that the companies that work with us surprise me. Some of them are huge institutions. I can't name them because I'm not allowed, but like huge financial global finance company, global consulting company, but then also startup that understands the value of, of 
scaling culture that's actually strong instead of scaling without any culture, right? Or it might be a government organization that has inherited horrible workplace practices and they want help transforming that into a healthy culture where everybody actually feels like they belong. So usually we're working with innovative leaders who know the value of our work. And then we work with one team and we measure. We have so much we measure. We do pre-post data. We look at the change. We actually calculate in both qualitative and quantitative data the impact of the work. So when one team goes through the training and then suddenly they're performing better, they have less conflict, they're speaking the same language, suddenly what happens is other teams are like, wait, I want to take this training. So, you know, it, it the word spreads by, by virtue of it actually being effective and the fact that we keep our trainings very practical. I'm not interested in teaching you some academic concept about conflict that you then don't know how to implement in your life. I, we really believe in breaking down what we are giving you into tools you can start using the next day in meetings, in your conversations, et cetera, and then actually having integration time after any of our trainings. So all our trainings come with three months of coaching afterwards, integration sessions, right? How are, okay, we learned this now. What do, how do we put this into the company? How do we actually make that transition? There's so many trainings where it's like, great, we did this half day training on communication. And then I went back to work and literally nothing changed. And got so, into a big fight with someone. Yeah. I'm, I'm not interested in that. Right. So yeah, I hope that answers the question a little bit. Yes. Yes. The work that you're doing is so, so powerful and transformative. And something that I would like you to reflect is, uh, I know you celebrated three-year anniversary and you hosted yesterday uh, the workshop on sharing the lessons learned throughout these three years. So would you share with us what are some of the most impactful lessons you learned? Yes. I already touched, touched on integration. I think that has been the biggest lesson that a program is only as powerful as the bridge between the content and real life. And if you're not attending to that, then you're kind of doing the people you teach a disservice. So if you want to have effective training programs, they have to have integration built in. That's one of the biggest lessons. The second lesson is as within, so without, right? So it really is true that these tools, they came from us on our team, working through our interpersonal dynamics and inherited challenges, inherited conditioning, and needing tools to communicate more effectively with each other. So we designed this not out of like an idea, but out of a need, out of a necessity for better communication on our own team and realized, oh, these are the tools that everybody needs to have. And we use them all the time. I'm using them all the time. I, I'll share one anecdote, which is that I grew up in a, in a household where my, my father is a former Soviet tank commander. So really intense levels of conditioning there from the army, from communism, from the Soviet Union, being a man and, and the idea of what a strong father is, right? And so my dad was operating and doing what he thought was his best in my childhood. And I, I forget, I have a lot of empathy for my dad. However, it created the kind of environment where I was not allowed to make any mistakes as a child. You know, if I so much as stepped out of line, it was like a three hour emotional abuse session where I was then punished or things were taken away from me or I was physically abused or emotionally abused. So I grew up really scared to make mistakes, right? Because I, I was just raised with this idea that anytime I make a mistake, I'm going to be abandoned and punished for it. Well, this doesn't translate very well to working on a team. 
where you need to be accountable and you're human and you make mistakes. And so I had to really decondition myself through the help of my team to identify this pattern that I had that was keeping me from receiving feedback, understand where it came from in my inheritance from my from these experiences from my childhood and learn the nervous system tools I needed to recognize that when someone's disagreeing with me in a meeting, they're not like threatening my my safety. You know, when I make a mistake, it doesn't mean I'm going to be abandoned and everyone's going to leave me. You know, I had to relearn these things in relationship and practicing like shifting the way I perceived things and realizing that, oh, okay, if I'm accountable for a mistake, it actually deepens the trust between me and the other person. And my pattern of trying to avoid taking responsibility for any mistakes that happened was actually hurting me, even though it had protected me as a child. So a lot of the things that we absorbed as conditioning, I want to just leave us on this note, they happened for a reason. We needed, we needed to inherit that conditioning to survive in that environment. But when we are adults, we get to choose our environment and we get to choose what we think is actually serving us or not serving us. So while avoiding being accountable for my mistakes helped me survive my childhood, it does not help. It's a maladaptive conditioning in my adult life that I actively work through all the time. So that's just one example of something that I shifted that has improved my relationship so dramatically with my team, with my family, with pretty much everyone in my life. So it really is around understanding yourself so that you can relate to others better and it all starts with with you with the individual so that's the biggest lesson that i would say in all training programs there's no one size fits all even the seven skills for challenging conversations they're a framework and you're going to use that framework through the lens of your unique inheritance right the way that you use the skills is going to change based on your unique blueprint, your unique design, your unique inheritance. And it's so funny that I would say it's like in terms of human design, that human design is inheritance, right? It's like <laughs> we don't choose that part of who we are, but we choose how we want to relate to it and what we do with it and how we make choices in our adult life to create a world where we're living more in alignment with our with our original blueprint. Thank you for this very practical example and something that I feel like you're going to give so much value answering this question as a projector is like when you talk about communication and using your human design and learning how to navigate it is the, one of the most important things is the human design strategy and strategy of projectors is to wait to be recognized and invited. <laughs> yep. And I know a lot of projectors, when they learn about this, they get conditioned even more. And they're so like, bitter, oh my God, so bitter, so bitter. And they feel like they've been cursed for having this yeah. human design type. You know what? So it's not just projectors. Every person I've given a human design reading to, when I tell them their strategy, they're like, ah, why can't I have it this other way? Because this is, this is, <laughs> we always think the grass is greener, but actually there is benefit and challenge to every strategy, to every strategy. Even manifestors struggle with their strategy, right? Don't so tell me about it. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's like there, we all, and again, we, we brush up against the stories we have about, oh, it's easier when blah, blah, blah. So what I'll say about the greatest projector lesson I've learned is Nobody can invite you when they don't know where you are and they don't know what you're good at and they don't know what you want to do. So 
you don't need permission from anyone to make yourself visible. You have your own channels. You have social media. You have, you could write a book. You could talk on a podcast. You could give speeches. You could set up a stand in a farmer's market. You can decide to place yourself on stage wherever you want and open up yourself to receive invitations. You can name what you're looking for on a giant, like imagine you got on stage in front of 10,000 people and you could be like, I love DJing. I love DJing. Look how much fun I have and how great I am at this and how I do it in my unique way. And I don't need anyone's permission to just show up and DJ music. I could do that in a park if I wanted, right? And then I trust that the people who like my vibe and like my energy and they see my unique power and they see like how I can do this thing better than anyone else, they will come to me. Then they will come on my door and say, hey, can you come DJ my party? Hey, I really liked what I saw on your Instagram, like love that song, come come do this. And then the invitations come and you can decide which ones are which ones are right for you and which ones you want to say yes to, which is a whole other episode that we could, that we could do together. <laughs> but no one, can, no one can invite you if you're sitting in the corner not showing anyone what you can do and waiting for someone to see you and recognize you. Exactly. This is what I've been repeating, repeating, but I feel like it's more powerful when it comes from the lived experience and a projector itself. So you do you show up and give other people the chance to see you, recognize you, and invite you. And thank you so much for all all the wisdom, all the lessons, and everything you have unpacked here in this episode with us. And is there something for the end that you would like to share that you maybe haven't mentioned? And also if you can tell us how people can work with you and connect with Inheritance Project. Yes, absolutely. We have an amazing 10-week leadership immersion that starts on September 11th. It is 10 weeks in community of unpacking inheritance and then learning the seven skills for challenging conversations. So looking at your inherited patterns around conflict, around uncomfortable situations, working on a real life situation, a real life conflict through those 10 weeks. So if you're listening to this and right away, something comes to mind like, oh, my relationship with my manager or my coworker or my dad or my mom or my brother or my partner or my whoever, or my children, <laughs> it doesn't matter. If there is like a tension, a conflict, something that you know is stealing life force from you, you spend time, it like lives rent free in your head, then this training is invaluable to you because you'll get a chance in community to actually work through this. And at the end of the 10 weeks to have a real, real life-changing conversation with whoever it is that you have this challenge with. And I can tell you, to over 2000 people have taken this training and 100% of them, 100% say, I am now better equipped to handle conflict. I'm now better equipped to handle uncomfortable situations. So if you know this is a growth area for you, I can't stress enough, go on inheritanceproject.org, check out our leadership immersion. We have group discounts, we have nonprofit discounts. We even have a section of how you should sell this to your boss so that you can invest your professional development money in this training in particular. You get a LinkedIn certification at the end, if that is important to you, and you get a lifetime 
access and community, a group of people all doing this work together. So you can stop venting to your partner or your best friend, and you can come and talk to us because we're all doing the work together. So that's the most exciting opportunity that we have right now. But we also are always exploring partnerships. We do programs for teams. If you're a leader listening to this and you're like, I need to get an inheritance project to come do an intervention on my co-founding team, we do that as well. So you can find everything about us on inheritanceproject.org. And you can also find a lot about me there as well, including links to all of my other work. So I would love to meet you if you are resonating with what I'm saying. And if you want to do something completely free, you can go on our website, inheritanceproject.org, and we have a free complimentary Unpack Your Inheritance workbook. So you can just start there. It takes, it's on your own time, um, and you'll already get a lot of value out of just dipping your toe into that self-inquiry. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll leave all the links below the episode. It was such a pleasure having you and leading this conversation. And I'm looking forward to the next one because I'm sure there's much more to unpack. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Career Alchemist Podcast with Jana Burek. If you like this episode, please share it with a fellow career alchemist or leave us a review. If you'd like to learn how to build a thriving career or business by your human design, sign up for the free training and the link in this episode. For additional resources, please visit careeralchemist.com.